Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the lovely podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I am your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan, and this is episode 43. And today we're going to take a look at the American Federation of Musicians. But first of all, I want to give a big shout out to my listeners. So first of all, big shout out to Oklahoma, New York, Massachusetts, Texas, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Virginia, and and Ohio. Excuse me. So we will go ahead and get started on this one here. So again it is the American Federation of Musicians. The abbreviation is AFM. Their predecessor is the National League of Musicians. They were founded October 19th in 1896. Their type is a trade union. Their legal status is a 501c5 organization. They're headquartered in New York City, New York. They have locations in Canada and the United States. As of 2020, they have 67,803 members. Their president is Raymond M. Hare Jr. They have affiliations with the AFL, CIO, and the Canadian Labor Congress. So let's go ahead and get started on this one. It says the American Federation of Musicians of the United States and Canada is a 501c5 labor union representing professional instrumental musicians in the United States and Canada. The AFM, which has its headquarters in New York City, is led by President Raymond M. Hare Jr., founded in Cincinnati in 1896 as the successor to the National League of Musicians. The AFM is the largest organization in the world to represent professional musicians. It negotiates fair agreements, protects ownership of recorded music, secures benefits such as health care and pension, and lobbies legislators. In the US, it is known as the American Federation of Musicians and in Canada, it is known as the Canadian Federation of Musicians. The AFM, the AFM is affiliated with AFL-CIO. the largest federation of unions in the United States and the Canadian Labor Congress the Federation of Unions in Canada among the best known afm actions was the 1942 to 1944 musician strike orchestrated to pressure record companies to agree to a better arrangement for paying royalties so a little bit about their history it says the roots of the musicians collective action began with the new york city based musical mutual protective union which took the first steps toward creating uniform scales for different types of musical employment in 1878 by March 1886 delegates from 15 different protective unions across the United States came together to form the National League of Musicians to discuss and rectify common issues such as competition from traveling musicians the American Federation of Labor recognized the American Federation of Musicians in 1896 A group of delegates had broken away from the National League of Musicians in order to form a more egalitarian organization inclusive to all musicians seeking to give meaning to the phrase in unity there is strength the first standing resolution of AFM was that any musician who receives pay for his musical services shall be considered a professional musician the first convention upon which the American Federation of Musicians was founded was held October 1896 at the Hotel English in Indianapolis, Indiana. The group had 3000 members and Owen Miller became the first AFM president. In 1896, Miller said the only object of AFM is to bring order out of chaos and to harmonize and bring together all the professional musicians of the country into one progressive body. At the same time, the trade union movement was taking hold throughout North America. Unions representing all types of laborers were forming reforming to exercise collective strength to raise wages, improve working conditions and secure greater dignity and respect for working people. In 1887, the AFL and the Knights of Labor 
first invited the National League of Musicians to affiliate with the trade union movement, but the offers produced deep divisions within the National League of Musicians. Some members objected to musicians being called laborers, insisting instead that they were artists and professionals. As the American music scene prospered and more symphony orchestras were founded, the need for a national organization for musicians increased. In 1897, the union became international when the Montreal Musicians Protective Union and Toronto Orchestral Association joined. By 1900, the union changed its name to the American Federation of Musicians of the United States and Canada and was actively organizing on both sides of the border. A 1903 resolution was passed prohibiting foreign bands taking work from domestic bands. It was followed by a 1905 letter from the AFM petitioning President Theodore Roosevelt to protect American musicians by limiting the importation of musicians from outside Canada and the US. By 1905, an official position on the International Executive Board was created to provide Canadian representation at the federation level. Early accomplishments of the union included setting the stage or setting the first scales for orchestras traveling with comic operas, musical comedies and grand opera. Among the pressing issues was competition from both foreign musicians and off-duty uh, military musicians. In its first 10 years, the AFM had organized 424 locals and 45,000 musicians in the United States and Canada. Virtually all instrumental musicians in the US were union members. In 1906, the 10-year-old organization made a donation of $1,000 to earthquake victims in San Francisco. Now, mind you, back in the day, $1,000 was a lot of money, so that is nothing to sneeze at. A 1908 appropriations bill banned armed services musicians exempting Marines from competing with civilians. In 1916, Congress passed a law prohibiting all armed services members from competing with civilians. During the World War I era, general unemployment affected musicians. Silent films displaced some forms of traditional entertainment, and with the declining economy and other factors, many musicians were laid off. In 1918, two important legislative measures, prohibition and a 20% cabaret tax to support the war effort, negatively impacted many musicians. Prohibition ended after 13 years. but the cabaret tax took its toll on the music industry for many years to come. Now prohibition I was aware of. But um the cabaret tax I was not aware of. Um prohibition actually um lasted way longer like until the 1950s in in um in Oklahoma. Um even though people drink a lot here, they like to pull the the religious Bible belt kind of stuff. I was going to say BS, but I'm trying to work on my language. They try to make it seem like they're religious. by banning certain things but yet it just leads to bootlegging so it wasn't really a good thing to do anyway. Uh Oklahoma probably would have been better off if they had stayed a territory because they had saloons back then. <laughs> so probably would have been more fun. It says here the Copyright Act of 1909 created the first compulsory mechanical license stipulating royalty payments be paid by the user of a composer's work, but the law excluded musicians. In the 1920s, new technologies challenged live music for the first time. The advent of recording and radio forever changed the landscape of musician employment. At AFM conventions, the union decried the use of canned music and forbid orchestra leaders from advertising their orchestras free of charge on radio. By the end of the 1920s, many factors had reduced the number of recording companies. As the nation recovered from World War I, 
technology advanced, and there was diversity in recording and producing music. In 1927, the first talkie music or the first talkie motion picture was released, and within two years, 20,000 musicians lost their jobs performing in theater pits for silent films. Minimum wage scales were created for vitaphone, movie tone, and phonograph recording work. In 1938, film companies signed their first contract with AFM at a time when musicians were losing income as phonograph records replaced radio orchestras and jukebox competed with live music in nightclubs. The AFM founded the Music Defense League in 1930 to gain public support against canned music in movie theaters. The AFM set higher scales for the recording work than for live work, negotiating the first industry-wide agreements in the labor movement. While musicians flocked to Los Angeles hoping for high-paying recording work, fewer than 200 new jobs were created by the technology. I just wonder how whoever wrote this can verify that because I don't see anything where they can actually prove that. To help musicians find their pay in union jobs, the AFM created a booking agent licensing policy in 1936 and in 1938 developed a similar program for licensing record companies. While national scales were set for live musicians working on fledging radio networks, some stations had already begun using recordings. The 1937 AFM convention mandated Weber to fight against the use of recorded music on radio. He called a meeting with representatives of radio, transcription, and record companies, threatening to halt all recording work nationwide. After 14 weeks, the stations agreed to spend an additional $2 million to employ staff musicians, but the Department of Justice later ruled the agreement illegal. I completely agree with that ruling. because there's just something not right about that like it's kind of like coercion you, you can't force that the next section it says labor leader James Petrillo took command of the AFM in 1940 he took a stronger stance challenging technological unemployment among the most significant AFM actions was the 1942-44 musician strike sometimes called the Petrillo ban orchestrated to pressure record companies to agree to a royalty system more beneficial to the musicians The strike forced the recording industry to establish a royalty on recording sales to employ musicians at live performances. This resulted in the Music Performance Trust Fund, which was established in 1948 and continues to sponsor free live performances throughout the US and Canada. When the MPTF began dispersals, it became the largest single employer of live musicians in the world. Petrillo organized a second recording ban from January 1st to December 14th, 1948. in response to the Taft-Hartley Act. In the 1950s, the MPTF was reapportioned to form the AFM Pension Fund and the Sound Recording Special Payment Fund. Numerous labor actions in the following decades improved industry standards and working conditions for musicians. New agreements covered TV programs, cable TV, independent films, and video games. Pension funds were established and musicians also secured groundbreaking contracts providing royalties. for digital transmissions and from recordings of live performances. Petrillo's tactics were not universally accepted. While his 1955 negotiations had led to increased payments into the funds, the lack of a scale increase angered some full-time recording musicians. Musicians were promised a voice at the next round of meetings in 1958, but talks broke down and the strike was called. When calls for Petrillo to reopen negotiations were rejected, A group of disgruntled Los Angeles musicians formed a dual union, the Musicians Guild of America. 
1946, Congress passed an act known as the Anti-Petrillo Act. That's funny when someone puts your name in the act because they don't like you. <laughs> that made a criminal offense for a union to use coercion to win observance of its rules by radio stations. Collective bargaining with broadcasters over hiring standby music- musicians and paying for rebroadcast of live performances became illegal. As a result, live broadcast on radio were almost completely eliminated. When Petrillo retired, Herman Kennan took over as AFM president. In 1958 and 1959, rank and file committees of recording musicians sat at the table while Kennan negotiated favorable agreements with the recording, television, and jingle industries. Until reading about this and researching it, I had no idea there was such a thing as jingle industries, but I guess there is. The Musicians Guild of America was defeated in a 1960 representation election, and the AFM regained bargaining rights for motion picture studios. During the 1960s, the AFM organized its political lobbying efforts, creating the TEMPO, Tempo, Political Action Committee. Among the pressing issues of the day, were government funding for music programs and repeal of the 20% cabaret tax. Cabaret tax. I completely agree with that. Cuz that is just ridiculous to have that. The AFM also sought to lend its voice to national labor issues such as the fight against right to work laws. In 1951, lobbying efforts against the cabaret tax paid off when non-profit organizations including symphony orchestras were exempted. In 1957, Congress reduced the tax to 10% resulting in a 9 million dollar rise in nightclub bookings by 1960. In 1966, the tax was finally repealed. Amen. What's interesting is like if you notice when they lowered the tax and then completely did away with that tax, the the economy got better. So that's why you have to be careful what taxes you put in place and how high they are. It says here in 1955, the AFM formally asked Congress to subsidize the arts industry. The Federation cited its concern for preserving preserving America's cultural heritage and protecting the country's less commercially viable styles, jazz, folk and, and symphony music. The effort paid off in 1965 when President Johnson signed 20 USC 951, creating the National Endowment for the Arts, NEA. At the 1966 AFM convention, the initial 2 million dollars in NEA appropriation was announced. Much of the subsequent growth in professional symphony orchestras in the United States was a direct result of the NEA. AFM president Ray Hare said, "Government arts funding is critical to the ongoing financial and artistic well-being of American professional musicians. For nearly 50 years, NEA funding has enriched our community, supported our jobs, and held or sorry, and helped achieve cultural balance within virtually every congressional district." The Parliament of Canada used the death duties of two Canadian millionaire estates to establish the Canadian Council for the Arts in 1957. <laughs> wow. But think about that. The only way they were able to create that council in Canada was because two really rich people died and because their death taxes are so high. That's what's sad. They they get you even when you're dead as they say. According to an international musician article, the council was responsible for creating an aura of musical achievement such as the country has never witnessed but they had to wait for two people to die to do it in 2014 and 2015 the council allocated 155.1 million dollars well that's a lot 155.1 million dollars to the arts in Canada 
By 1960, tape recorders were making sound and video recordings easier and cheaper on a global scale. In 1961, the AFM participated in the Rome Convention to develop an international treaty extending copyright protection. However, because of pressure from American broadcasters, the federal government declined to sign the treaty. To date, only the US, China, and North Korea have not signed the treaty. Therefore, American musicians and record companies receive no performance royalties from AM/FM radio. The um yeah, the royalties from that. I was going to use a different word, but we'll just leave it at that. Through much of the early history of the AFM, union locals were segregated for black and white musicians. Black and white locals eventually began to merge, starting with Los Angeles in 1953, and by 1974, all locals were integrated. At the AFM convention in Las Vegas on June 23, 2010, the AFM elected Ray Hare to a three-year term as president. Hare was re-elected for an additional three years in July 2013, in June 2006, and again in June 2019. I think they need to have a change of management there. The AFM is active in trying to prevent plagiarism and illegal downloading. The sheer volume of recording industry output contributes to the possibility that songs might overlap in sound, melody, or other details of composition. In 2019, the AFM had a membership of 73,071. See here, this is specifically this next part is about Local 767. It says in 1920, the AFM opened Local 767 in Los Angeles along Central Avenue. It was a rehearsal and meeting space for black musicians who were denied access to white Hollywood jazz clubs. That is sad because discrimination is wrong on every level. This is that just really gets my attention. It says acclaimed jazz musicians such as Duke Ellington and Horace Tapscott um rehearsed at and frequented the space. Local 767 also existed as a cultural and community center for blacks in the surrounding neighborhoods, hosting cookouts, parades, and various events for the community. Younger musicians received hands-on guidance and were given opportunities to enter into the local jazz scene. So, what's interesting is that even though they were segregated and they were going through a lot that was not good, they still did their best to come together as a community. I think that is a wonderful thing to see that even in the face of prejudice, they still chose to be a community. That I mean it's sad that they had to deal with that. Very sad. But I think it's really a testament to their character that instead of being violent like Black Lives Matter, they they chose to be at peace. I mean, for sure they didn't like being discriminated against, and I'm, I have no doubt they probably fought it in other ways, but they were not violent. They just focused on what they could do in a peaceful, kind manner, and they really developed a really good community. I mean, because if it wasn't a good community or if it wasn't worthwhile, then we would not know about it today. So then, let's see here. Talks about their leadership, the different presidents that they've had, which I'm not going to go through that whole list. But at least they list them. But I really do like the emblem or the logo of the American Federation of Musicians. It has a really it looks like a harp, if I'm not mistaken, unless my screen is looking funky. But um it's really pretty. I really like that. It has like a little is that called a laurel or a wreath? I can't remember what it's called. Um but it has it going around the harp and I think it's a really pretty and a very very elegant emblem. It's one of the most elegant ones I've seen so far. when discussing these labor unions. 
But anyway, that is it for this podcast. Let me see what the next one is going to be about. Let me go see here. It will either be the American Federation of School Administrators or the American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees. Both of those are ringing a bell because the first one I just mentioned that reminds me of the Department of Education and some of the other things we've had to deal with in terms of teachers unions and things like that. And the next one after that, that's ringing a bell as well. So I will do some research and make sure that we do not duplicate on that front. But until next time, I pray that you're happy, healthy and whole and that you're having a wonderful week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Task. From the smallest step